Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag, and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. So Arthur Brooks, it is my great pleasure to meet you. I am such a huge fan of yours. I wait every week for your column in The Atlantic on how to build a life to drop. And I just think it's such a fantastic title and everything you've said about building a life, growing into happiness, letting go, surrendering. It's just like, you are my people. You are a member of my <laughs> tribe of happiness. I adore and admire and respect you so much. Thank you, Oprah. Likewise, you've, for so many years, you've brought love and happiness to millions of people. You've been an example to all of us. And I have to tell you that when I dedicated my, my work as a social scientist to lifting people up and bringing them together, I was thinking of you because you've done exactly the same thing with your career. And all of us can be apostles for happiness and love in our own way. You've taught well, us that. I did not know that I was even on your mind, but thank you so much. So you started the column uh, during the pandemic of how to build a life. What was the inspiration and the intention? Well, I started the column during, during, during the pandemic because I noticed that a lot of people were talking not about how the pandemic was an opportunity for us to learn about ourselves, but just as a sheer unmitigated problem. And one of the things that I love about being an American is that we're, we're such entrepreneurs. And what entrepreneurs do is that when other people see tragedies and problems, they always look for the, the opportunity that's inside it, but people weren't doing that. And I thought, wow, this is a huge opportunity for us to, to see what we're really made of, to find our resiliency, to find out the things that we can, we can do to come together as, as people in, in love, but I had to dedicate myself to doing that. I had to dedicate my ideas to that. So I started this column precisely to serve others. And may I say, first of all, I think The Atlantic is one of the great bastions of journalism, particularly right now. I think it is such a force in the world. And I got through the pandemic reading the, 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 the stories in The Atlantic and also reading your column. And uh, I would like to say for everybody who hasn't subscribed to The Atlantic or hasn't read the column, you need to do that. And you need to tell Jeffrey Goldberg that he needs to send us an email every week letting <laughs> us know that your column has dropped, okay? 
If I have to, I will personally send that email to you every week. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want everybody to know. I want everybody to know. Okay, I haven't even introduced you. Hey, everybody. This is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School, the author of 12 books, your new book, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life, reached number one. <laughs> I mean, as an author, that's got to feel like, like what? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I talked to a, a really close friend of mine, and, and he said, you know, the first time I had a book that got number one in the New York Times bestseller list, I thought it was going to be great, and then I felt nothing. And I said, really? I said, let me try. And, 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 <laughs> and, then, and then this book did, and I got to tell you, Oprah, I didn't feel nothing. You felt <laughs> a lot, pretty, right? It, it was feels... pretty great. Look, yeah, it's not happiness. It's not the secret of happiness, but it doesn't hurt. It, it's, yeah. you know, when you can help others this way, and it's great. Yeah, you know what it feels like? I got heard that it resonated. Exactly. Yeah, that exactly. what I said actually resonated. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. So from strength to strength is an idea I've often talked about over the years. Like I've always believed that strength times strength times strength times strength and building on that strength actually leads to your own personal power when you can take the things that have happened to you and allow yourself to gain strength from them and multiply it, then you end up being more powerful. But when you say strength to strength, what do you mean? Was it, what does that mean to you? Well, I have heard you say that over the years, and I agree completely. The problem is that most people, as they go through their lives, they, they hit a particular point, and they, they feel like maybe their best years are behind them because they don't feel as strong as they were, they don't feel like they're as quick as they were, whatever it happens to be, or their kids move up and move, uh, grow up and move away. And so they feel like they're going from strength to weakness. But there's an interesting thing in the Psalm, Psalm 84, there's an ancient Jewish blessing. May you go from strength to strength. In Hebrew, it's Michael el Chael 
I, I learned this, I'm, I'm a Catholic, so you know, this is the best I can do in Hebrew, but <laughs> it's, and it's a beautiful Jewish blessing because what it basically says is that no matter where you are, may you go to the next strength in your life. And even if you're building on what seems to be weaknesses, what seems to be tragedies and even suffering, that can be a source of strength so that the next phase in your life will be your next strength. And that's my wish in this book. That's my wish for me and for you and for all of us. Well, you know, it does not surprise me one bit that it is number one on the New York Times or and that it will sustain itself on the bestsellers list over the years because it is the message that people are looking for. I could feel that even, I, I just, I read an ad about the book and downloaded it before I could even get it, uh, you know, sent to me because I thought I want to read it immediately and I thought, whoa, this is what so many people, particularly who have worked and been workaholics and who are ready to, for that question of, is there something more? So I think you're reframing our perception of what a successful life actually looks like. And you argue that instead of fighting aging and change, that we can actually see it as transformation and spiritual growth, which is in itself revolutionary to get people to make that switch, which is what we want to talk about uh, today here on Super Soul. So publishers have always told me that writers often write the books that they need to read themselves. Was that the case for you too, sir? Yeah, indeed. You know, and you know, I'm an academic social scientist and I don't do research. Frankly, I do me-search. You know, my laboratory is over is, is conversations overheard on planes, um, is the conversations I have with people around me, is the troubles and the joys <laughs> that people tell me. This is where I get all my best ideas. But quite frankly, you know, about eight years ago when I started this research project, it was simply to use my toolkit to figure out the rest of my life. I was it, it, looking at me, you would have thought, well, things are going really well. You know, I was the CEO of a company and, and you know, things were great. I was working really hard. I had hit all of my goals. I had hit everything in my bucket list, which I had put together some years earlier, which I had just found, and I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy, I was lonely. My relationships with my family were not solid. I didn't feel like I had very many close friendships. And I felt like, you know, what am I doing this for? I mean, this is not satisfying. I'm just going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, like hitting the lever, trying to get the cookie over and over again. I mean, there has to be something deeper than this. I felt like, I don't know. I mean, I felt like it was empty, as a matter of fact. I, so I wrote this really, I wrote this for me. And then it turns out that everybody else is struggling the same way, but they don't talk about it. They don't talk about it. And you were feeling that way working 60 hour weeks. I mean, when right. I, I was reading, you know, I, I never didn't work a 60 hour week, 60 right. plus hour weeks. That was just the norm. And yeah. going from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, just really trying to fulfill the next thing you realize right. at some point. Okay, so you open this book with a story about a conversation that you overheard while on a flight almost, what, a, a decade ago, right? Yeah. Almost, yeah, about yeah. eight years ago when I started the project, yeah. Yeah, this was shortly after your 48th birthday, and that conversation on the plane set you on a path uh, that dramatically changed your life. Now, before you tell the story, just know that I was like, who was that? Who was that? I've been trying to figure out who that guy was. And at the end of the book, you tell us you're going to die and not tell us. So I was thinking, boy, if I could get him alone, maybe he'd tell me who it was. But it actually doesn't matter who it is. But go ahead, tell the story. 
Well, there's so many people like this. There's so many, and I found in history so many people like this who had the same experience. But I was sitting on this plane from, because this is what I was doing. I was flying around all the time, and I was, you know, tr trying to get the next success. I was, I was a success addict, quite frankly. And, and I was flying from L.A. to, to Washington, D.C. You've done it a million times. It's like 11 o'clock at night. I'm typing on my laptop, and I hear a conversation with a couple behind me on the plane. Right in the row, right behind me, and it was dark, so I couldn't see where they were, but I could tell by their voices, it was a man and a woman, I could tell by their voices they were elderly. And I surmised very quickly it was, a, it was a married couple because of the conversation. I could hear the man kind of murmuring, and his wife says, don't say it's, it would be better if you were dead. I'm like, so, whoa. Now, I'm not trying to eavesdrop, but they really have my yeah. attention at this point. Yeah. And then he mumbles a little bit more, I can't, but her voice is more piercing, and she says, you know, it's, it's not true that nobody remembers you, that nobody loves you, that nobody cares about you, that you've been forgotten. And this is going on for 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, this must be somebody who's really disappointed because he's, you know, he's not much of a striver, perhaps. Maybe he didn't live up to his own expectations, didn't get the education yeah. he wanted or start his job, start his career, whatever. And, and at the end, when we land, the lights go on and we all stand up. And now I'm kind of curious. And so I turn around and it's one of the most successful and wealthiest men in the world. This is somebody that is idolized by millions. And, and I thought to myself, you know, you, you think you're such a smart guy and what you're doing to be, to be satisfied, you know, to be successful. You know, this kind of life that you're living is no insurance that you're gonna be happy. And I thought to myself, I've met, I've met a lot of people who they start off with a lot of success in their lives and they wind up broke because they don't have a good retirement plan. And I thought, what's the retirement plan for happiness? That's what I need to put together. I need to put together my retirement plan, our retirement plan for happiness. And that's what this book is. Wow. That's what strength, the strength is really all about. You're right. It's Absolutely. a retirement plan for, for happiness. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, we made aha moments famous uh, during the years of the Oprah show. What you experienced on that plane is a whoa, back me up moment. Because if you look at that face of who you will never reveal who it was, a very famous person I'm sure it, it really catches you because you're thinking, if he, at this stage in his life, feels that way, what am I going to feel like? And I'm working What chance like, do I have? Yeah, what chance what do chance I have? What chance do I have? He's done <laughs> 10 times with his life, 10, 10 times more than I'll do with my life. And I'm still on the same hamster wheel that he's on, pretending that I can get these worldly rewards and bank them and die happy. And that is just, it's, it's, a, it's a lie. It's simply a lie. Well... You interviewed hundreds of leaders for this book and hyper-successful people at the top of their game, but you found many also had, and I loved the way you described this, had a hidden anguish that you call the striver's curse. Yeah. And when I read it for the first time, I went, that was another, whoa, back me up moment. I go, oh my gosh, I think, I certainly know what you're talking about because yeah. I, 
I, I I thought I didn't have it when I was able to end the Oprah show and I was feeling very proud of myself that I'd reached a point where I thought I'd said all I needed to say in that format. But when I left and started a network, what I expected was the same kind of success that I had achieved or had gained all of those years working the Oprah show. And when that did not come, I mm. was I, I was like like hit with 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 a, with a brick wall and i yeah. realized when i read in strength to strength oh that's what i had the striver's curse yeah, explain absolutely. that explain well, that it's absolutely the case so here's the weirdest thing that i found so when i hear this guy on the plane and i say look we need this retirement plan for happiness the first thing i looked at was who tends to get happier as they get older and who tends to get unhappier because it turns out that half the population after age about 65 gets happier and happier, and the other half of the population gets unhappier. And I expected the people who were getting unhappier to be disappointed to not have achieved very much, and it's the opposite. The people who are on the lower branch of the happiness curve are the ones who did the most earlier, and so they're disappointed that it's finished. That's the striver's curse. Look, if you never do anything with your life, you, never, you won't know if it's over. But if you do a lot, you know, what goes up must come down. And this is not just true for wealthy and successful people in these worldly terms. You see this for people who have invested everything in having the most successful kids. You know, people who do just try to be really excellent in what they do, whether they make a lot of money or not. If you're a striver, you, got it, you have to really have a good happiness retirement plan so that you can keep getting happier. You can't count on your past successes to get you there. And so the curse is what? Explain what the striver's curse is. The striver's curse is the people who are trying to bank their successes and, 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 and be happy as a result of that tend to be unhappier, not happier. The people who actually had the best success early on, unless they take their happiness into their own hands, unless they make the right decisions later and get onto a second success curve, then they'll tend to be unhappier than the other people. And that's the great irony. Nobody thinks that's going to be the case. People are like, wow, you were a child star, or your kids were so wonderful. Why aren't you happy when you're older? It's because you didn't actually do the work when you got older to do the things that the happiest people, the habits the happiest people actually have. Okay, and so you say, in order to cure that striver's curse, you've got to be willing to move into the second curve. Tell yes. us what that is. Tell us what that well, is. It turns out that everybody's got two big success curves. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're, you're a business person. I don't care if you're an entrepreneur or an electrician or a professor, whatever you happen to be. The you see it really clearly get, with athletes, though. You see it really clearly oh, with Oh, yeah, athletes. for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and what happens is your first curve in your 20s and 30s, you get better and better and better at what you do. You're very good at focusing. You're very good at innovating. You're very good at solving other people's problems. So the crack lawyer, the really star litigator, for example, that's your, that's your, your it's called fluid intelligence, by the way. And it peaks in your late 30s or early 40s, and then it starts to decline because of the structure of the prefrontal cortex of the brain. This is part of the brain. This is not just a psychology thing. This is actually part of what, we, what neuroscientists tend to see. And most people think that's their only success curve, but it isn't. It turns out there's another success curve, another kind of intelligence that comes in behind it that increases in your 40s and 50s and gets higher in your 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s. That's not your, your raw smarts curve. That's your wisdom curve. That's not your Mark Zuckerberg brain. That's your Dalai Lama brain. That's your ability to actually teach other people, to share with other people, to cultivate other 
you know, your first curve is your parent brain and your second curve is your grandparent brain. And if you can make the, and, and this is well studied by the way, this is, you know, neuroscience has actually seen this in a whole bunch of studies through, through the decades, mm -hmm. that you see this different kind of intelligence. That's why older people are better at teaching, they're better at forming teams, they're better at collaborating with other people, they're better they're better, they have more wisdom is what it comes down to. And if you can get from one curve to the other and what you're trying to do, you win. But if you live on the first curve, you're gonna be really disappointed. And, and live on the first curve and are constantly trying to fulfill, once you should have moved into the second curve, still trying to fulfill what you had in the first curve. One of the stories that really struck me was the story you told of the Wall Street uh, woman who was a financier and um, striving, striving, striving. Tell us about yeah. that moment, that story. I love yeah. that story. Yeah, so this is, and this is just proves that this is not, not just about guys, it's everybody, it's all human beings. I love studying happiness because we're all sisters and brothers, we're all exactly the same when it comes to happiness and love. And, and I was interviewing this woman on Wall Street, this titan of Wall Street. I have permission to tell the story without divulging the identity. And she was pretty unhappy, I have to say. She'd made hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars with her own firm. She was admired. She had made all kinds of right decisions. A great, she'd been a total workaholic. But, but for weirdly, she was seeming to tell me that she was unhappy. I said, why are you unhappy? Well, it's like, you know, I see my husband and I were kind of roommates more than spouses. I said, my relationship with my adult kids is kind of cordial. I don't really have any real friends. And, and quite frankly, I'm bored by my job. And this is the first thing when your fluid intelligence is declining, the first tell is you're starting to get kind of burnt out because you're so good, nobody else is gonna notice, but you do because things are getting a little bit harder so you don't like it as much as you used to. It's like, how come I'm bored with this thing I used to love? And she was, she's kind of missing Ooh, the beat. She was stop probably, there, stop there. Yeah. That is so huge what you just said because I was gonna ask later, like, how do you know when you should be moving into the second curve? It's what you just said, when you start yes. to get bored by the things that used to be automatically exciting to you. Yeah, you're the dentist who used to just love going in and working on people's teeth, and you're like, I think I'll take Fridays off. You know, maybe I'll golf, maybe I, I'm gonna take up a hobby. Why do you want a hobby? You've got the greatest job ever. And the reason is because you're coming down on your fluid intelligence curve and you don't like it. You're the first one to know. Wow. Oh, okay. So I'm the sorry. lady. Uh, okay. Yeah, the lady. Go back to the, story. the lady. The lady. Okay. So she's, you know, so she's, you know, and she's telling me that it's, it's pretty grim. Drinking a little bit too much, starting to get bad reports from her doctor. And, and I said, look, you don't need a, a guy with a, you know, a nerd with a PhD to tell you what to do. You told me what to do. You need to go away with your husband. You need to step back from your job. You need to reestablish your relationships. Maybe you need to get into AA. You need to actually take care of yourself. Why don't you do that? She thinks about it. She says, you know, I think I'd rather be special than happy. And I said, whoa, boom. boom. Because you know, I've done, I've worked with addicts for years and addiction all works the same. You, you know, when you ask addicts, you know, don't you realize that if you stop drinking, you stop taking drugs, you'd be happier? They're like, duh, of course I know that. I prefer to be high than happy. That's what she was telling me. She preferred yes. to be high than happy, but her high was to be special, to be the special one. And that's what people do who are handcuffed to that first curve all the way down to the cellar. You know what that reminded me of, Arthur, when I first, uh, that just struck, the reason why the story struck me, the, the her line about, well, maybe I'd rather be special than happy. I remember on my 28th birthday, waking up, 
realizing it was my birthday and sobbing because prior to that, I had been the first black woman to uh, anchor the news in Nashville. I'd been the first this, blah, blah, blah. I'd been the prodigy this, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh my God, now I'm 28. I'm not going to be special anymore. It's all, it's all over. So this need to feel like you are special is something that I think people have and don't even recognize that they have it. For sure. And one of the biggest problems that we have is that we do this to our kids. We make yes. them, we, we objectify them. We tell them, you're the special one, you're the smart one, you're the high achiever. And they start to see themselves as a success machine from the time that they're kids and they become very objectified, self You know, we always hear, don't objectify other people. It's a sin for right. their money or for their looks or whatever. But we objectify ourselves all the time. And it's, it's hugely alienating. And what happens is people become success addicted workaholics. They don't see themselves as a real human being. And that's what that was happening to that lady. And, and Oprah, me too. Me too. You know, and I had yes. that, you know, I was, I had that conversation with her and it blew my mind. And I went back to my hotel and I looked in the mirror and I said, buddy, you too. You prefer, you, your whole life you've been trying to be special and instead of happy. And I called my wife and I said, is this true? She said, obviously it's true. I've been telling you this for years. I've been telling you You're this for decades. You've been passing on your happiness so that you can be the unique one, the special one, the, yeah. the successful one. And I'm guilty, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty, Oprah, I'm guilty. That's well, why I wrote the uh, yeah. book. Well, 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 and yeah, I, I saw myself in that story. And this is what's so interesting. You explained to us in Strength to Strength that the workaholic isn't just isn't just devoted to work because people say, oh, he just loves his work, he loves his work, he loves work, or she loves work. That's not really what they're seeking. They're seeking... Yeah, they're, to begin with, they're seeking distraction from themselves, distraction from their lives because their own life is too boring because happiness is boring, specialness is not boring. That's where you get your high. There's a lot of neurochemistry behind this. There's a, there's a neuromodulator produced by the brain called dopamine, and that's yeah. what, what's behind all addictions. And a lot of Americans know about this right now. And dopamine is behind the success addiction. Hit the lever, get the cookie, get the little spurt of dopamine inside your brain. And so these workaholics, it's unbelievable. They have all the same symptoms as, as, as alcoholics, as a matter of fact. They sneak around. They're really hostile when you question their work habits. They, they only stop working when they're a desiccated husk of a human being and there's nothing left to give. That's why they work. They choose the 14th hour of work over the first hour with their kids. And you know, how many times have I done that? Too many to count. So I just want you all to know that we're going to talk about this, but nothing is ever going to replace reading it for yourself and spoon feeding those words from strength to strength to yourself. So I hope you get the book and you read it and you yourself can figure out where you are on the scale of workaholism or uh, looking for, you know, specialty, being special versus being happy. But I feel like that for so many people, the realization that there needs to be a second curve or the realization what you say is everybody is going to decline everybody yeah. is going to decline nobody wants to believe that you're going to be the one that is actually going to decline you think you can beat it yeah. it's so crazy it's the craziest thing you know i ask my students i so i teach these mba students and at the harvard business school they're very talented they're in, they're incredible as a matter of fact and they're all about 27 28 years old or most of them are and i say imagine yourself 10 years from now you're going to be happier or less happy a hundred percent say they're going to be happier because they're gonna have more success. They're gonna have a better job. They're gonna be making more money. They'll probably have their family situation figured out. I say, how about 48? They're like, yeah. 
yep, probably happier. And then I say, how about 78? They're like, oh, I don't want that. I don't want that. I say, why don't you want that? He says, it sounds old. I don't know. Don't, being old doesn't sound good. And it's all wrong, Oprah. It's all wrong. It turns out that the average person slightly declines in happiness from their early 20s until their early 50s and then comes up all the way to about, you know, late 60s. And then they break up into these two groups. And so it's all completely different than what we expect. We have to live our life understanding our successes and paying attention to what really matters the most. We have to get into the bank from the, this is why we have a step-by-step -step basic retirement plan for happiness in this book. So that you yes. can make the deposits and get happier and not leave it up to chance. You say we need to move from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. Tell That's us right. what that means. Tell us what that well, means. Well, fluid intelligence is that first curve that you go up through your 20s and 30s and then it peaks and it starts to go back down. That's fluid intelligence. The crystallized intelligence curve is your wisdom curve, your teaching curve, your grandparent curve. It's instead of answering all the questions faster than everybody else, you know what are the right questions to ask. That's in your 50s and 60s and stay, can stay high in your 70s and 80s. If you walk across to that curve by going from innovator to instructor, to figuring out what it means to be a mentor, to teach other people, to lift other people up. This is the beautiful thing about it, Oprah. It's all about service. The fluid intelligence curve is me, 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 me. The crystallized intelligence curve is you, 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 you. And that is the most beautiful way for all of us to get happy. This is the secret to being happier as we get older in the crystallized intelligence part of our life is to be wise and giving and full of love. I love when you say in strength to strength, devote the back half of your life to serving others with your wisdom. Get old sharing the things you believe are most important. Excellence is always its own reward. And this is how you can be most excellent as you age. Yeah. So that's why it was so exciting to me that this book hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers list because that message gets to resonate with people who most need to hear it. Yeah, and we can, the whole thing is we can make a movement. If we can make a movement yes. around people who are actually trying to get older and to do this and who see themselves as teachers, as sharers, as those dedicated to lifting other people up, and at the same time, by doing that, getting stronger, getting wiser, and getting happier, then the whole country wins, if that can be our movement. Well, how do you get people, because people think of retiring or moving on to the second curve, as you call it, as losing sort of your big lease on life. You use the, uh, the phrase vanasprasta. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Vanaprasta, yeah. Vanaprasta. A, a Sanskrit word, yeah. A Sanskrit word meaning retiring into the forest. And people think retiring into the forest means, first and foremost, somebody said this to me recently, nobody wants to not be relevant. And I yeah. think that the idea of retiring in the, to the forest means you're no longer relevant. But what you're saying in strength to strength is that you can become the most relevant you've ever been by sharing your wisdom in ways that you haven't before. Absolutely. One of the things that a lot of people find is that they're so good at what they do early on, but they don't really get deep satisfaction from it for this kind of this treadmill. They're on run, 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 and then on to the next reward, the next reward. And only when they get onto the second curve, if they have the, if they have the courage to do it and they have the wisdom to see it, then they get deep satisfaction, usually for the very first time. If you want to be truly relevant to, the, to humanity, to other people, then the, only on the second curve are you going to find that relevance. And, and it's mind-blowing to me that I almost missed it and that so many people do miss it.
Well, in one of your recent columns, you wrote that to foster innovation and success that lasts, America needs more than innovation. It needs wisdom. Now, we, as you know, we're so youth obsessed yes. and, you know, anti-aging. Everything is about anti-aging. I mean, everything in our society tells us don't age, don't age, fight it, resist it. Do you think American companies will see the wisdom in hiring older people as leaders yeah, you know, I was giving a talk at a, a Silicon Valley startup, you know, big, actually a very successful company. And, you know, it's all people much younger than me. And they were talking about, and they have big diversity problems. And, you know, women and people of color in these, and I said, and I, I took that on. But then I said, speaking of diversity, how many old people do you have working here? And this guy says, what do you mean, over 30? Punk. Wow. And, and, <laughs> and, and I, you know, the key, the thing about it is, look, I mean, I've got the data on this and you need people with crystallized intelligence to not make dumb errors. You know, companies that are too youth obsessed, they make all sorts of errors that Oprah, you would never make. You've been in business for a super long time. You have, yeah. a, you have a sixth sense for what's about to come, the gut that you've got. My view is, and what I'm hoping to do is to create a, a labor market for, for executives who don't want to retire or who want to come back from retirement who are over 70, because I believe that every company in America should have executives, at least one executive over 70 in every C-suite, every product team, and every marketing team. This would help America, it would help these companies, and we would all be better off. I love the story that you tell in the book about um, really appreciating fishing and you were out fishing one day and you run into this guy who gives you this really fantastic advice about fishing. Yeah, this is like, like sort of a Huckleberry Finn moment, practically. Yeah, it was. And it I'm was. hardly a Huckleberry Finn character. You know, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, not, not on the Mississippi River. And, uh, but I used to fish as a kid. And, and the reason I tell the story is because it was in the context of everybody's afraid to make changes in their life. People are really, really afraid to go from one curve to another, to go from any part of their life, to, to give something up. You know, when they've got something successful, they, want to, they grip it so tightly. And what I'm saying is you will be happier if you get into the gap. This is what our friend Deepak Chopra, he talks about being in the gap between things is insecure and that insecurity brings all kinds of creativity and possibilities. And, and so I talk about it this way. I, I was, you know, this one day I was out fishing and, and in the ocean. I wasn't catching anything as a kid. I was 11 years old. And this old guy comes up. He's from, the, from this town. He's like watching me from some shack. And he comes up. He says, hey, kid, are you catching anything? I said, no. He says, because you're doing it wrong. I said, what do you mean? He says, you can't catch anything right now. You have to wait for the falling tide. Now, for, you know, for our, our listeners who don't know what a falling tide is, that's when the tide is going out especially fast. It happens for like half an hour. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense because all the fish will be gone, right? He says, uh-uh. No, 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 no. That's when the plankton and the bait fish are stirred up so the game fish are biting everything. It looks like everything's going out, but the fish are going to bite everything. And he says, it's in 20 minutes. He's got his fishing pole too. So we throw our fishing, we throw our lines in. When it, he says, now we do it. And we start pulling fish after fish after fish. It's amazing. And afterward, you know, he's getting all, he, we're sitting on the rocks exhausted. And he's kind of philosophical. He, he, he lights up a cigarette, like in the old days, right? And he says, kid, you know, during a falling tide, you can only make one mistake. And I, I said, what's this. that, sir? And he said, not having your line in the water. I love that, that really moment. stuck with me because here's, here's the deal. Because a lot of the people who are listening to us right now, they're between things and they're feeling bad about it, between relationships, 
or they've lost something, they're in a falling tide, it looks like you're losing everything right now, get your line into the water. Look for opportunities. Look for what's actually up because in this pain, in this moment of sacrifice, in this moment of loss, therein lies your resiliency. Your true soul can come out during these moments. It's not about a fish. It's about actually figuring out what it is that you're supposed to do. You only know in these moments. I love that. Get your line in the water. Because there's a falling tide to life. The transition from fluid to crystallized intelligence is what you say. It's when you yep. jump from one, one curve to the other. And when you face your success addiction, when you chip away the essential parts of life, when you ponder your death. Uh, when you build your relationships and uh, start your vanaprasta. So, you know, facing death, I mean, people don't even want to hear the word when you start to yeah. talk about death, but you do a whole chapter about us yeah. doing just that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are so, it's so weird. Humans are, humans are so funny because we all know we're going to die, and yet we're huge optimists at the same yeah. time. It's like, ah, the future is going to be way better. It's like, even though we know we're going to die, we think the future is going to be better. And the reason is because we can block out this fundamental truth, just not pay attention to it. But our Buddhist brothers and sisters have mastered the art of actually understanding this fundamental truth and only being fully alive because they understand their death. Now, it sounds really, really Eastern, but the truth is every major spiritual tradition does this. And, and to walk the spiritual walk, which we must do if we're going to be happy as we get older, this is one of the great habits of the happiest people is they walk a spiritual walk, which I know you believe deeply into, and so yeah. do I, that one of the ways that they do this is by staring straight at the subject, the object of their of their fear. And, if, and, and, and again, some people say, I don't really, I'm not afraid of dying. If you're afraid of irrelevance, you're afraid of dying. If you're afraid of decline, you're afraid of dying. If you're afraid of being forgotten, you're afraid of dying because that's your version of dying. Failure fear, that's a fear of dying as well. And so I make my students take it. There's a, there's a Buddhist meditation called Maranasati, which is a nine-part meditation on death. And I make my students write a version of that around their particular fear. And for a lot of my students, they're really, they're Harvard students, and they're afraid of failing because they haven't failed very much. And they're, they're super hyper overachievers. I mean, they all want to be Oprah Winfrey. And, and they think this, and this is going to be as if you haven't suffered, which is so absurd, you know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. as if you've never felt lonely, as if you've never felt the same things that all people feel. And, and so they're afraid of failing. And, and so I say, write out a nine-part meditation. And one of these has to be, Imagine, you gotta meditate on each part. Imagine your parents feeling sorry for you. And a lot of them start crying at that point. Because imagine this, you know, your parents are the ones who turned you into the success machine. The parents yeah. are the ones who lifted you up. They're projecting their own autobiography on the screen of you. And I thought about it, you know, the reason I did that is because that was my great fear too. That was my great fear growing up. I mean, I was, a, I was a classical musician my whole life. All I ever wanted to be was the greatest French horn player in the world. And, and I just so feared failure. I just so feared failure. And then when I failed in that career, when I was in my 20s, my mother was a, felt sorry for me. And it, just, it just broke my heart. But because of that, because of that experience, because you know, I had to face that experience, I was strong as a result of it because I'd actually gone through the thing that, that seemed like, like a horror show to me as a hyperachiever. And, and I, it helps my students a lot. And we have to do the death meditation, the, the failure meditation, the, the decline, the I'm forgotten meditation. Only when we truly face our fears can we be, can we be fully alive. Well, you also do an exercise of projecting like if you only had a certain amount of time to live what would you want to accomplish between now and, 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 and that time? 
For sure, yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is my friend David Brooks who writes for the New York Times. He has an exercise that he does. He's it's called the your eulogy virtues versus your resume versus your resume yes, virtues. Yes. You imagine people. You're not going to be around for your funeral. <clears throat> Presumably, we're not going to be able to see the eulogies at our funeral. But you, the one thing you don't want them to say is that you know he had five million frequent flyer miles. That's not what you want him to be saying at your funeral. You yeah. want him to be saying you know he was a he was a loyal friend. He was a, a great father. Uh, he, was a, he was a wonderful husband. He was full of love. He loved his country. He loved the world. He wanted to lift people up. He wanted to bring people together. That's what you want people to say. And so, okay, work for that. Work for those resume virtues. And again, this is one of the habits. This book is a bunch of habits of, of, the, of the happiest people as they get older. Follow their habits. And this is one of the things that they do. They think, look, what do I want to be remembered for? And now I'm going to do that. I love it when you say that the decline in your fluid intelligence is a sign that it's time not to rage, which uh, doubles down on your unsatisfying attachments and leads to frustration. Rather, it's a time to scale up your crystallized intelligence, use your wisdom, and share it with others. And one really wise person you went to visit said, the bottom line is being able to know yourself. It all comes down to knowing yourself. Yeah, one of the great skills of the happiest people who are old is they don't lie to themselves. They've stopped lying to themselves. And part of lying to yourself is, is this big lie that if I get the next success, if I get the old days, if I'm good at what I used to be able to do, if I work hard enough, I can get those old days, then everything is gonna be fine. And we actually, in our heart of hearts, we do know that these things are lies. You have to look at what you're good at. You have to look at what you can do that nobody else can do. And this leads you to your second curve. It leads you to be a more generous person. It leads you to love more. When I think about it, I mean, what's the big lie to me? You know, working all day and all, day, all night long, it's a huge lie. But what's not a lie is putting down my work and going home to my wife. That's not a lie because that's authentically what I can only, and by the way, this is the principle of indispensability. What can I do that nobody else can do? Somebody else can work the 14th hour, but nobody can be a father to my children in that first hour. And that's really, that takes the courage of being honest with myself. Well, I love the three questions that people can ask themselves to see if they're guilty of workaholism. Yeah, yeah. The first is, are you out of energy? Are you just like, do you, the only reason you stop is because you can't anymore. And this is one of the things you ask people who have an alcohol misuse disorder. Is the only reason you stop drinking because you simply can't drink anymore tonight, physically. You can't stand anymore because you pass out. The second is, is uh, are you sneaking around with your work? And this, is, this happens to a lot of people. I'll ask a lot of my friends. I'll say, like, is your wife hassling you about your work? Is your husband hassling you about your work? Like, yeah, yeah, they don't understand. And so when they leave on Sunday afternoon to run an errand, you take out your laptop, and then when they come back, close it up and put it away. That's sneaking behavior. That's like sneaking a bottle of gin. And, wow. and, you know, and, it's, and the last is you get defensive when people suggest that you're probably working too hard. When your spouse or somebody that loves you or your kids say, and you're like, hey, somebody's got to support this family. You know, I talked to one guy and he says, oh, my wife, she wants all the nice things that money can buy, but she doesn't want me to do the work that it takes to get that money. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-uh, sorry. It doesn't pass the smell test. I've run the data on this, but you don't even need to. That's workaholism. That's the, those are the three tells. Well, if you're answering yes to all three of those three tells, how do you then begin to change that? Because that, that is an addiction. 
Yes, absolutely. absolutely. How do you begin, begin with, to change? Yeah. To begin with, you have to recognize that underlying the workaholism is almost always an addiction to success. And you need to break that by recognizing that it is a problem and that you want to change. Now, this is all the principle of any 12-step program. Starts with, my life has become unmanageable because of my behaviors and I truly want to make a change. And the first thing you need to do is you need to tell that to somebody who's close to you that you love. And this is a hard thing to do. Most workaholics and success addicts, they don't want to do that. They don't want to go to their spouse and say, you know what, you were right. You were right. I'm not fully alive. I'm not a full person here. And then you need to say, I need you to help me. And the only thing that's going to help me is love. That is the only, because that's, Oprah, you know perfectly, we all know that love is the only thing that actually will, will fight these fears, that will solve these wounds, and that will actually wake us up from our slumber. You, you know, everybody has a bucket list or many people have a bucket list, um, like getting a promotion or a nice house or going to a specific place, but you recommend making what you call a reverse bucket list. What would that yeah. look like? What does well, that mean? Well, the key thing is, you know, when it comes to satisfaction, everybody thinks that if they get what they want, then they'll be satisfied, but that's a lie because your brain is lying to you and the marketing industry is lying to you and the whole infrastructure of our society is lying to us that if we get the Buick and we get the boat and we get the Cape Cod house that we'll finally feel satisfied. And that's the junk that's on everybody's bucket list. So on your birthday, make a list of all your, your sticky cravings and desires, and then you'll feel great about your life. Huh? You'll lower your satisfaction because you'll say, what a loser I am. I don't have those things. The thing to do is to not to have more. The key is to want less. That's what we want. We need to want less. And the way to want less is by detaching ourselves. Look, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having a position in which you have power or, or being well-known because you can use these things for great good. You're using the fact that people, everybody knows you for great good. People say Oprah Winfrey and they associate you with love and happiness, with the good that they can have in their lives. This is a perfect example of how worldly rewards, they can rebound to the things that really matter. The things that matter are only four things. These are the habits that all the happy people in the world do in common. These are the deposits to put in your accounts, your faith, your family, your friendship, and work that serves others. Those are the four, not money, power, pleasure, and fame. Money, power, and pleasure, and fame are never the right goals, only those are intermediate goals. The final goals are faith, family, friends, and work that serves other people. And when we remember that, then we can truly live up to, to our, our, our highest potential. The reverse bucket list says, look into your bucket, Make a list and look at all the stuff that's money, power, pleasure, and fame for its own sake and say, I detach myself from these things. And you'll be amazed. I do it every year on my birthday. And it's, it's, it's changed my life dramatically. So what is that process like for you? You literally sit down and make a list? Yeah, I make a list of all the stuff that's been you know, chasing me, all the phantasms, all the ghosts that have been chasing me of success and social comparison, all the things that, you know, the things that I wish I had and that I'm not getting, and it wouldn't be great, how will I know when I'm successful enough? And I make a list of all those things. And then I say, and I say a little prayer, and I dedicate it, I offer it up. And I say, I, I promise this year to, to dedicate myself not to chasing these, these ghosts to, and not be chased by these things anymore. And it's amazing, because what happens is, here's the key. This actually has a lot of neuroscience behind it. That there's a, that your, your cravings, your sticky attachments, these are formulated in the limbic system of your brain. This is your automatic brain, your animal brain. When you actually make a reverse bucket list, you move it to your, your executive brain and you can manage these feelings when you make, do this exercise. Okay, I love the book. I want everybody to read the book, but I'm wondering if people who are just listening to us and haven't read the book yet, are hearing you say we shouldn't be chasing success 
because that is a really difficult thing to hear because that is a part of the American dream. We think it's yeah. our, that, that's, that's our birthright. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Who is it doesn't want to chase success? Yeah, but the key is success for what? Worldly success for what reason? Here's the deal. When, when money and power and pleasure and fame are the end goal, you will become unhappy. It's 100% guaranteed you won't be satisfied and you will become unhappy. If money, power, and, and notoriety or prestige or the admiration of other people actually leads you to being able to serve other people with your work, then you win and everybody wins. So here's the key. I think that the, the free enterprise system that lifts people up is a great good. I think it's a great, incredible blessing. It's pulled billions of people out of poverty, our sisters and brothers around the world. But when people do it because they want the money per se, it's a problem. When they want to do something creative, when they want to create jobs and opportunity and growth for other people, then it becomes a very beautiful thing. So remember that we should be ambitious to walk the spiritual path, ambitious to have a family full of love, ambitious to have real friends. And but when I say that, every striver knows the difference between real friends and deal friends. They're not the same thing. And work that has only two characteristics. I don't care if you're, if you're a, a television show host or a university professor or an electrician. It doesn't matter. It has to have two characteristics where you earn your success, where you really feel like you're being rewarded for your hard work and you serve others, especially who, uh, who really need you. And if you have these things, meaningful work, family, faith, and, and, and friendship, real friendships, that's the best kind of ambition. That's, that's ultimately, that's real success. So there's this uh, concept called liminality, and it's what mm. psychologists call the state of being in transition. And you explain that uh, difficult or painful transitions can often bring forth a greater purpose in our lives. So how can we lean into liminality, those big life transitions? Yeah when, you're in a, yeah, when you're in habits and in ruts, you, then, then you basically you're not paying attention to change very much. You're not paying attention to new things very much. It's just you go, you know, you get up in the morning and you make your coffee and you go to work and you succeed in your job and you come home, you go to bed and you do the same thing over and over and over again. You get into a rut and you're not paying attention to new outside stimuli. But when you have a change, you know, when you actually have to move from one job to another, a new city, when your kids move out, when you retire, when you have these big changes, sometimes, sometimes they're voluntary, but a lot of times, even if they're voluntary, they're really painful. The data show that we have a big, what we call a life quake. My friend Bruce Feiler, he talks about this life quakes that every five years, we have an involuntary, unwelcome change in our life on average. We, we don't want those things. We hate those things. We have a natural bias against them. We think they're threatening and scary. These things are our friend if we actually lean into these particular changes. Because in those moments, you know, these are the times we look back and we go, yeah, actually, you know, the, the divorce, that's when I figured out who I actually was. You know, when I lost somebody that I loved, when I got sick and I was really afraid, when I lost my job, that's when I figured out what I was made of. That, those are liminality moments. And those are the moments that create the most meaning. The biggest mistake, I'll tell you, Oprah, that my students make, is they spend all their time trying to not be unhappy and trying to avoid these unpleasant changes. That's a huge mistake because when you avoid your unhappiness that actually comes from these sacrifices and painful changes, you paradoxically, you avoid purpose and meaning and you avoid your happiness. You need to embrace all of it because you're gonna get it. Look, don't go looking for suffering, but suffering is gonna find you and me and everybody. So make the best of it, actually learn from it. Learn, learn, to, learn to love it if you can. Or at least lean into it and yeah. not resist it. We, we started out talking about how, how your columns were born out of the pandemic. And I wanted to right. know what 
tested you the most during the pandemic? Did you feel tested and, and what tested you the most? Pandemic was hard for me. Like a lot of people, it's hard for me. I'm, I'm, I'm an extroverted person, obviously. I love traveling around, sharing ideas with people. I love seeing people in person. I wish I were there in Maui with you and not just because of the birds, because I would love to see you in person. It would just, yeah. it, it's a, being with people is a beautiful thing. And that was really hard for me. But even harder than that was just the uncertainty because I didn't know, you know, I was starting a new job when this thing broke and I was a new way of life, a new way of working, and it was all falling apart around me. I wasn't able to get out and talk to audiences and do what I do. And, and so what I really learned, that's what tested me, but that was the most important thing because I learned this because I studied, I mean, again, I turned the microscope on myself and, and a lot of people were suffering from uncertainty and that's a kind of form of fear because you don't know what's gonna happen. You can't estimate the probabilities. You can't manage anything. And what I learned was actually that this idea that psychologists call metacognition. Metacognition is where you don't, you're not managed by your feelings. You manage your feelings by thinking about your feelings. Either you're doing it with a psychologist or with a, with a therapist or you're doing it with meditation or you're doing it by journaling or whatever you do, or can't, you know, whatever it is, but becoming metacognitive. And, and I realized that by thinking about my uncertainty, I was making a huge mistake. I was trying to resist what I could not resist. And so I started saying something. This was a real breakthrough for me. Every morning when I woke up, I said to myself, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I don't know what's going to happen with the coronavirus epidemic to my country or to the world. But I do know one thing, Oprah, I knew one thing. I just woke up, I'm alive, I'm healthy, and I will not waste the gift that is this day. And it took me until I was 56 years old to learn to say that. And today, every day I do the same thing, I, because the, thank God that I learned this during the coronavirus epidemic, and I get to do it for how many years God gives me in the rest of my life, that I will not waste the gift that is this day. Boy, that was a great awakening. I was gonna it ask really you, did you, did you have a great awakening? That was a great awakening. Changed my life, changed my life. I'll never be the same. Because, and that's what the pandemic helped you, helped you to yeah. realize for yourself. Absolutely. So I wanna end our conversation today with what you wrote on page 214 you, in Strength to Strength. You say to go from strength to strength requires learning a new set of life skills. We need to adopt a new formula, which I've laid out in detail in this book chapter by chapter, but of course, you are unlikely to memorize the last 60,000 words. I thought you're right about that, thank you. So let me <laughs> summarize the whole book in seven, a formula that encapsulates all the lessons I have learned and how to strive to live. Use things, love people, worship the divine. I just love those seven. I want you to expand a bit on those simple seven words. Use, beginning with use things. The world tells us, the, the, the marketing culture tells us, our brains tell us, use people. Use people for your pleasure, use people for your satisfaction, use people for your success. That's wrong. There's only one thing to use in this world and that is the thing. It's things. Things are made to be used. Things are not made to be loved. That's what's so critically important. And so when we say use things, it's bas it basically says use things for what they were made for, what God made them for. And do not ever put people in the category of things. Love people. This is the, exactly the transposition of the last one. You know, we said instead of the world tells you to use people and love things, that's wrong. 
we should we should use things and, and love people because only people are made for love. There's a there's an 80 year study that's conducted at a Harvard University, and the and the, the the founder of the study he was looking at, at people over 80 years, and and he said, can you sum it up in five words? And he said, yes, I can sum up the secret to getting happier as you get older in five words. Happiness is love, full stop. And that's really what you need to know. And that's love not for your car, not for your boat, not for your beach house, it's for the humans. Love people. Love people, worship the divine. Yeah, and this is the last mistake that we make in our life. You know, the, there's a great writer and philosopher named David Foster Wallace that died very young. He's a wonderful writer. And he one time said something really astute. He said, everybody worships something. And so if you don't think you worship anything, if you're not walking the spiritual path, if you think all of it's nonsense, you're going to worship something because humans are made to worship. And it's completely right. And what do people worship when they don't think they're worshiping anything? And the answer is they're worshiping themselves. When they're looking at themselves in the mirror, when they're posting the selfies, when they're actually obsessed with the, the social comparison culture, that's all self-worship. And it's, it's an exercise in futility and frustration. The only thing that's worth worshiping is the divine. And this is one of the greatest and most important lessons of getting older, happier, but also the lesson for everybody, because this is a book, it's a retirement plan for happiness. If you start at 25, you do even better. Everybody needs to walk a spiritual path. I'm not going to tell you which spiritual path. you got to figure That's that out right. for yourself. And if you walk the spiritual path, you will stop worshiping yourself and you'll start worshiping yourself. Use things. Love people. Worship the divine. All the lessons of this book are in those seven words. Thank you, Arthur Brooks. It's been my delight to chat with you. Oh, my God. You did not disappoint. From Strength to Strength is available wherever books are sold. Uh, so I hope everybody get the book, read the book. I hope people keep reading the book and that this just carries you from strength to strength. Thank you, Oprah. Thank you for what you're doing for the world and what you're doing for me. Ah, loved it, loved it, loved it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. At Delta, we know Mike and 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.